Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is brought to you by flitterweb.com. Flitterweb is a new website where people can review online stores, web comics, dating sites, and any other place they visit online. It's like Yelp for the internet. Check out flitterweb.com to find out more. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 60 looking west. It's time to finally turn our gaze away from the civilizational earthquake taking place in the eastern Mediterranean and look westward. Since the fall of Maurice in 602, the Byzantines had barely had time to deal with events to the west of Constantinople. Constance II had tried briefly by moving to Sicily, but apart from his failed efforts, the Romans were utterly preoccupied by the East. So today we travel west to briefly examine what was going on in the former lands of the Western Empire and what remained of Byzantine holdings in Italy, Africa and the Balkans. You can follow along on the map I've posted on the website and on Facebook. It's a tiny notch ahead of our story as it's showing Europe in 700 AD, and we stopped the century at 695. That's no big deal though, and it should give you a good sense of what's happened. The map was made by Thomas Lessman, the same man who gave us the maps of the world at 600 and 500 AD. Although I gave credit to those maps on the website, I haven't yet mentioned them on the podcast, so let me remedy that right now and send you to worldhistorymaps.info. He has a fantastic collection of historical maps there, which I'm sure you will enjoy checking out. Furthest west was Visigothic Spain. When we last checked in on the Goths, the energetic King Leovigild was creating a more powerful state in the face of the threat from various rebels and Justinian's small invasion force. By 600, the Visigoths were firmly in control of the situation and finally eliminated the Byzantine province in 624. Significantly, the Goths had now fully adopted the Catholic faith, and so were better able to integrate their rule with the influential Spanish-Roman bishops. Between 601 and 642, there were nine different kings, most of whom were violently overthrown. However, the Gothic nobles were battling for control of the centre, and not trying to pull the kingdom apart. 
From 642 onwards, the leadership was more stable and more peaceful. Gothic rule would include many important church councils and the issuing of law codes, an interesting blend of Roman and Gothic identities. However, for our story, the most significant development is the lack of any external threat to Gothic rule. This meant that the Gothic military remained in roughly the same state it had been for the past couple of centuries. There was no apparent need to make the kind of adjustments or defensive preparations that the Byzantines had made in the face of the rise of Islam. This would leave the Visigoths totally unprepared for the arrival of an Arab invasion in 711. To the north in Gaul, or now the realm of the Franks, we last left the descendants of Clovis battling one another for territory as the practice of leaving the kingdom to multiple sons continued. In the 6th century, the Franks were the dominant military force in Western Europe, and as you know, were able to intervene on multiple occasions in the Byzantine Wars in Italy. The Merovingian dynasty, founded by Clovis, was technically in power from 511 until 751 AD, a hugely impressive achievement in one sense, but the division of the realm meant that the Frankish state was not as powerful as it might appear on paper. Between 511 and 679, there were only 22 years when a single king ruled. In practice, this meant that each region, Aquitaine, Burgundy, Saxony, and so on, had its own power base. Local nobles controlled large amounts of personal wealth and thus could have private armies which they used to gain political power. The kings of the Franks were often forced to give away land to these powerful men in exchange for their support, and so during this time the resources of the area were never wielded effectively. By 700, the power of the kings had declined to the point where the mayors of the palace, the administrators and strongmen who ran the king's court, held the real power. The royal courts became most firmly established in two areas known as Austria and Neustria, one centred on Paris and the other on Cologne and other cities along the Rhine. Historian Chris Wickham points out that this established the political centrality of that area, a centrality which it has never lost since, as he puts it, while also sowing the seeds of the future division between France and Germany. The geographical distance of Francia from Arabia meant that the impact of the emergence of Islam was barely felt here. But listener T asked the question about what exactly the Franks, Goths or Lombards would have understood about the Arabs. Because the Byzantines were still active in Italy, the Lombards would have had access to information about events in the East. The Goths and Franks, too, would receive news and rumours as they drifted up the remaining trade routes and through church circles. We don't have much evidence of formal diplomatic contacts between the governments of the West and Byzantium, but what we do have is the writings of the Frankish historian known as Fredegar. His chronicle covers the first half of the 7th century in the West and briefly touches on events in Byzantium. This may not tell us exactly what educated men in the West understood, but gives us a hint of what some people had taken on board. What he reports is an interesting collection of fact and fiction. 
he identifies the Hagarians or Saracens, we'll come back to those terms in a future episode, as a circumcised people who of old had lived beneath the Caucasus on the shores of the Caspian Sea. Hmm. He then describes the Battle of Yarmouk by saying, in the ensuing battle, the Saracens were the victors and cut the vanquished to pieces. It is said that the Saracens killed in this engagement 150,000 men. He goes further. After describing how the armies camped near one another, he adds, but during that very night, the army of Heraclius was smitten by the sword of God. 52,000 of his men died where they slept. When, on the following day, at the moment of joining battle, his men saw that so large a part of their force had fallen by divine judgment, they no longer dared advance on the Saracens, but all retired whence they came. It's difficult to know where Fredegar was getting his information, or if he was just exaggerating some things for effect. The fact that he thinks the Arabs came from the Caucasus is an interesting mistake, If it's a genuine one, it shows a fairly shocking state of affairs in Western geography. His description of the Battle of Yarmouk, though, is essentially correct, except for the numbers, which are wildly overestimated. This is fairly common amongst ancient historians, though the sheer vastness of the exaggeration may suggest that Fredegar's real understanding of events on the ground was minimal. But it also might say that in the Frankish imagination the Romans were still assumed to be a world empire commanding huge legions. Uh, Final interesting thing, I think, is the judgment of God being responsible for the Roman defeat. Those who've bought the episode on the origins of Islam won't be surprised by that idea at all, and I will explore it further in the next couple of episodes. But to Fredegar, the world is so self-evidently Christian that he can't see another explanation for Roman defeat than the hand of God itself. He doesn't suggest why this was, but the idea that the Saracens were militarily stronger or were inspired by a new faith doesn't even cross his mind. It's important to remember that particular worldview when we approach questions about how the Byzantines reacted to their defeat. Another way to note the diminishing memory of the Roman Empire in the minds of those in Western Europe is the drying up of imperial coinage during the 7th century. With the Arab conquest of the East, the amount of shipping going west rapidly decreased, and therefore so did coins with the emperor's portrait on them. As you know, this everyday item was a vital piece of evidence to the common man of where power lay. And in some parts of the West southern Gaul, for example, coins were still being minted with the Byzantine emperor on them well into Heraclius's reign. But by 700 AD, aside from Italy, coins from the empire had disappeared from the western kingdoms. South across the Alps, we enter Italy. The political situation is much as it was a century ago. The Byzantines still hold Ravenna in the north and Rome in the centre, along with Naples and parts of the heel and toe of the peninsula. They also still control Sicily, Sardinia and Corsica. The Lombard monarchy in the north had spent the century slowly nibbling away at Byzantine territory. They took Genoa in the 640s and Puglia in the 670s. 
In the south, the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento remained independent. Listener T asked whether Italy was recovering economically from the devastation it suffered during the Gothic Wars. Certainly the more stable situation allowed the average farmer to get back to work, but with trade permanently changed by the rise of the Arabs and the split of the peninsula into different political spheres, it would be a long time before Italy would become a wealthy place again. The Lombard state, however, was slowly becoming stronger. They established a capital at Pavia and issued their first law code in 643. It wouldn't be until the next century, though, that the kings became Catholic. The Lombard king was far less wealthy and powerful than his Gothic or Frankish brothers, but as a counterbalance, his nobles, in the north at least, were far less wealthy and therefore less of a threat. In all three of these Germanic kingdoms, the Roman tax structure was slowly melting away. In order to keep control of their powerful dukes, kings would grant them land or immunity from taxation or other privileges, and this inevitably leads to a weakening of the state's ability to make war. The more power local forces have, the more chance they will resist calls to arms. And as we will explore in the next episode, the maintenance of taxes and a professional army is one of the main factors in Byzantine survival. Of course, that absence of regional military power is a double-edged sword. As we just saw with the Arab conquests, once the Roman army was defeated, the Arabs were essentially uncontested for hundreds of miles in any direction. Had they invaded the realm of the Franks, they would have met resistance everywhere they went, as the warrior aristocracy defended their own regions. But as we shall see, without a base like Constantinople to organise resistance from, such efforts would likely have been futile. The common theme in the West during this time was the development of that military aristocracy. If you had money and power, then you were a soldier, and being a soldier was the only way to maintain one's status in a competitive world. The old civilian aristocracy, which had dominated the Western Roman Empire, was gone. After two or three hundred years now removed from the empire, new identities were being formed from the synthesis of German and Roman cultures. Listener T asked what languages people in the West spoke at this point, which is quite difficult to answer specifically, I imagine, and I won't attempt a full answer. But the experience in Gaul will probably give you some idea of what was going on. Before Julius Caesar arrived, the dominant language in the area was Gaulish, though it had many regional variations. Over the next few centuries, Latin came to dominate, but as ever with language, a local strain was what people actually spoke, something we would call Vulgar Latin. A mix between the Latin spoken by the arriving Italians and the existing Gaulish language. Once the Franks arrived, their own German speech became incorporated into the mix. The Vulgar Latin would be the dominant substructure, but Frankish certainly made an impact. So slowly, Old French, as we now call it, was emerging amongst the population, while men of letters would still learn and practice Latin. 
a similar process was taking place in Italy and in Spain. We can see an example of this kind of melding of cultures in the grave sites found in Italy. When the Lombards appear, we have grave goods in a Germanic style with weapons left with men and necklaces and other jewellery with women. And over time we find a more Roman style to these adornments before they disappear completely as the Lombards adopted Catholicism. However, while the immigrants accepted the religion of the indigenous people, Roman names begin to disappear from the records to be replaced by Lombard ones. The two peoples were becoming one, with adaptions made on both sides. Returning to Italy, let's look at the Byzantine side of the equation. The cities remaining in imperial control were still wealthier than their Lombard counterparts. Rome, Ravenna and Naples could still boast far grander buildings, and Rome in particular maintained control of the countryside outside the city, providing an economic base to support the elaborate court rituals of the papacy. Listener T also asked whether the emperors interacted with the leaders of the Lombards. I assume not. I think the emperor's official position would be that the Lombards were squatting on his land, and if he began writing to the Lombard king, he would be acknowledging his right to rule in some way. But of course, on the ground, the local Byzantines did interact with the Lombard court and made official truces with them whenever they could. Listener YA wanted to know more about Rome and the status of the Pope. Although the city was garrisoned by troops from the Ravenna Exarchate, their loyalty was not to be counted on. As you remember, Constance II did have Pope Martin dragged off into exile, but it was the second time he tried it, the first time, the troops had rebelled. And by the time Justinian II tried the same trick, the troops simply ignored the order. As the inheritor of St. Peter's Church, the Pope had always enjoyed tremendous prestige amongst Christians, and his influence had grown with the collapse of the Western Empire. Suddenly, he was the only figure in the West who could claim a direct succession back to the time of Jesus. And thanks to the Lombard invasion, the Popes maintained a healthy distance from Constantinople. As you've seen throughout the narrative, the papacy never saw the need to compromise with the Monophysites, and this apparent consistency and integrity appealed to many people. With the rise of the Arabs, the Empire's ability to fight the Lombards will disappear. And so by the time we come back here in a century, the papacy will have slipped from actual imperial control. Listener YA also asked about the official status of the popes compared to the other patriarchs and the title Pope itself. The title Patriarch, meaning father of a family, came to be applied to senior bishops in Byzantium, what we now might call archbishops. So the official title of the Pope would have been the Patriarch of Rome, and he was considered to be on a par in terms of ecclesiastical authority with the Patriarchs of Constantinople. The ranking of patriarchs, i.e. whose authority meant more, was a political concern, with various emperors tinkering with it to win favour. Focus, for example, promoted the Pope to be preeminent, but Justinian II's councils made it clear 
that the patriarch of the capital was once again his equal. Before that, the patriarchs of Antioch and Alexandria also agitated for prominence, but now, for obvious reasons, neither were in a position to press their claims. The title Pope comes from a Greek word meaning simply father, and in earlier centuries of Christianity could have been used to refer to any senior bishop or member of the clergy. In time, it came to be associated primarily with the Patriarch of Rome, until by about the 10th century or so, this had become official terminology. Fitting with the theme of the warrior aristocracy, the Byzantines of Italy had become increasingly militarised. If you lived in a city surrounded by enemy territory, it was no good being only a cultured man of letters, as your ancestors had been. No, you had to be ready to man the walls or take up arms to protect your way of life. Just as the wealthy men of Spain and Gaul were now a military elite, so were the Lombards of Italy and the Byzantines on the coast. As we will see next week, the men of Anatolia were the last to follow suit. The collapse of the Roman Empire in East and West was marking time on a world where a peaceful civilian elite had once ruled. To the south of Italy, the Byzantine province of Africa hangs grimly on in the face of persistent Arab raids. I'm afraid its time is coming, though, and by the time we reach 700, as you can see on the map, it will be no more. To the north of Italy and heading east, the Avars still control the future plain of Hungary. This area is the end of the great steppe lands which stretched on east toward China. Since the humiliation of turning away from the gates of Constantinople in 626, the Avars had slowly lost control of the outer tribes on its periphery. The Slavs of the Balkans, and of course the Bulgar tribes, have both intruded on our story. But for now, no other tribes had risen to threaten Avar control of the centre, and so they remained there, just north of the Danube. Listener C asked whether the Romans had ever attempted to patrol the Rhine and Danube to keep out barbarian invaders. As I mentioned at the end of the last century, the Byzantines did indeed have river patrols on the Danube connected with forts like Sirmium. However, the river is hundreds of miles long, so for these fleets to actually stop crossings would have required thousands and thousands of men to man it. And since the crisis of the 3rd century, the Romans had given up trying to stop men crossing the river. It made more sense to try and track them down once they were in the Balkans. The same will be true when we get back to Anatolia and wonder why the Romans didn't block all the mountain passes to stop the Arabs raiding. It's just a practical issue. The more men and resources you leave on the front line, the less help they are if anyone gets past them. Once the raiders get through, you've now got men on the front line who either have to abandon their posts and chase the intruders, or stay where they are and let the enemy have free reign. Also, if you leave too many men on the front line, they could be surrounded and lost, whereas if you keep them in reserve, you have more chance of deploying them successfully. So we come to the Balkans. For centuries, it was a secure and benign part of the Roman world. 
But since the crisis of the 3rd century, it's become a camping ground for the enemies of the empire. First the Goths, then the Huns, then the Ostrogoths, the Slavs, the Avars, and now the Bulgars. Non-militarized Roman towns had all but been wiped off the map in the previous few centuries. By 700 AD, our knowledge of what is actually going on in the peninsula is very limited. Since Heraclius withdrew the few troops that remained, our sources know nothing about the area. They've gone dark. Why? Well, first let's remind ourselves of the geography. I've added a modern topographical map of the area to the post for this episode. If you have a look, you can see how incredibly mountainous the region is. Once you leave the Thracian plain near Constantinople, it was very hard work to police the area because the rugged landscape provides thousands of miles of rough terrain. As you saw when Justinian II visited Thessalonica, he had to fight his way through Slav settlements to get there and was ambushed by the Bulgars on the way home. When the whole region was part of the Roman Empire, then it was a fairly trouble-free set of provinces. But as soon as independent groups moved in, the Balkans became incredibly hard to retake. When we looked at the Arabs using the desert as a superhighway to reach Iraq and Syria, we saw them bypass the physical obstacles to conquest. When the Romans looked north toward the Danube, all they could see were problems. In order to remove the Slavs or the Bulgars from their new homes, they would need huge armies and huge logistical support to traverse the mountains and establish bases. Resources that just couldn't be spared from the defence of Anatolia. Despite no writers emerging from the Balkans to tell us what was going on, the area was not a Roman-free zone. Even in the areas now lost to imperial administrators, a large part of the population were former Roman citizens. Let's start, though, with the areas still directly under imperial control. Of course, we know about Constantinople and the nearer part of Thrace, and Thessalonica down the coast heading toward Greece. In Greece itself, various cities like Athens and Corinth were still garrisoned, and south of them, most of the Peloponnese and the Aegean islands were in imperial hands. On the Adriatic coast, the city of Dyrrhachium was still occupied, but as you travel further north up either coast, the outposts in Roman hands become smaller and less significant. Being on the coast, though, we do have records of trade and transport between these places. Further inland, though, there were still cities being held by native Romans, which we know much less about. Stobi in Macedonia, for example, sent representatives to Justinian II's ecumenical council, while Serdica and Philippopolis both emerge in the sources in the 800s, implying that they were continuously occupied in the meantime. Significantly, perhaps, both are located on the main military road leading out of Thrace, so they may have been able to keep limited communications going with the capital. You can find all these places on the map which accompanied episode 9. Like their compatriots in Italy, the men of these cities would have become militarised in order to survive, and of course they were living in far poorer economic times than ever before. 
The Slavs were now the second largest population in the Balkans and would slowly grow to dominate the areas where they'd settled. They were particularly prominent in the west, the former provinces of Dalmatia and Epirus. In the 10th century, the emperor Constantine VII, a prolific writer, would claim that Heraclius had agreed to allow the migration of the Serbs and Croats into that area after they broke away from the Avars. But as you know, historical claims of this kind are usually based on the reality of the time they're written in, rather than the time they write about. We have little evidence to suggest that self-identifying Serbs or Croats actually existed in 700 AD. Listener T asked about whether the Slavs were Christians at this stage. The answer for most of them is no, as they'd brought their various pagan beliefs with them, which we have little record of, and Byzantine missionary activity will only come later. The process of how Slav populations absorbed others or were absorbed themselves remains a mysterious and fascinating one. Over time, of course, many of the Romans of the countryside would marry into the arriving Slav tribes and slowly become indistinguishable from the peoples they joined. We get glimpses of this in archaeology, as when we find the still-Roman population of Split, Diocletian's retirement home, beginning to produce pottery, which is identical to that being used by the Slavs living out in the countryside. Clearly, trade and friendly interaction did happen. The Slav tribes who occasionally attacked Thessalonica during the 7th century may have moved there, in part because of the opportunity to trade with the townsfolk. This could, of course, lead to tensions and conflict, but even within the narrative we saw how this might benefit both sides. You may remember that one Slav attack on the city was provoked by Constantine IV executing their leader, Perbundus. But according to the sources, Perbundus spoke Greek and dressed like a Roman. He was, in fact, the holder of honorary Roman office, presumably given to him by the emperor to try and gain some control of his people. A delegation then came to the capital to argue against his execution and it contained both members of the Slavic tribe and residents of Thessalonica. So, just as Romans in the north would slowly become Slavs, so Slavs in the south would eventually become Romans. Slavic groups had definitely settled in Thrace and in Greece, but their archaeological remains are quite thin. Rather than suggesting they were driven off, in the face of a resurgent Byzantium in the 8th or 9th centuries, it seems more likely that they were invited in and began to adopt Roman ways. Political maps are, of course, extremely helpful in telling us about historical realities, but they don't always convey the level of everyday cooperation going on on the ground. The people will always need other people to interact and trade with, and the commingling that goes on is something a map can't show. This commingling becomes more explicit in the case of the newly arrived Bulgar Khanate. The Bulgars were a steppe people who paid reverence to the sky god Tengri and organised their new state as the Turks and the Khazars did, with inner tribes, outer tribes and tributary peoples below that. The seven Slav tribes living in the area were quickly co-opted, but so were the local Romans. 
Some of the earliest inscriptions and record-keeping of the Bulgar state are written in Greek. The writer uses the Byzantine imperial dating system and refers to officers in the Bulgar hierarchy by imperial titles. The Bulgar leadership had realised that using the talents of their subject peoples would help them maintain what they'd taken. You can also see from the topographical map that the imposing Hemus Mountains range now provided an ideal natural barrier between the Bulgars and the Byzantines. To remove the new threat, imperial armies would have to march a long way. The Bulgars would establish their winter camping ground at Pliska, not far from the old Roman city of Nicopolis, and this would develop into their political capital. As if this picture weren't complex enough, we should remember that there are peoples who lived in the Balkans in such remote areas that they weren't incorporated into any recognisable political group. This would include Romans and Slavs, and perhaps even some peoples from the Thracian or Illyrian past of the area that had avoided Romanization somehow over the centuries. We have to take this into account because of the existence of people like the modern Albanians, who may well have been living in the Western Mountains in 700 AD. And then you have the case of the future Romanians, who may represent former Romans, or once upon a time Romans, who avoided full integration into the future Bulgarian nation. The Balkans had gone from being an imperial backwater to a melting pot of new peoples. The penultimate question today comes from listener GM, who asked how many people constitute a tribe. He asked specifically back when I described a tribe moving out of the Avar Khanate, made up of descendants of Roman prisoners. As with most numbers, uh, we don't really know anything for sure. In this case, though, we're probably talking about 10,000 or 15,000 people at the absolute maximum, and possibly only four or 5,000. Any larger than that, and the sources would have mentioned it, as they would at that point have become a military threat. I think it's fair to assume that if I don't mention the size of a tribe or a group living near the empire, then they are less than 10,000 strong. The real exception to this were the Vandals and Goths and others who migrated during the 400s. They tended to move in groups 20 to 80,000 strong, and hence why they caused such disruption to the Western Empire. The last question for today is listener GG, who asks whether the Byzantines knew anything about the Vikings or the Varangians who will be heading off to terrorise Europe in the next century. The answer is no, as far as I know. I don't think the Byzantines knew much about what was north of the Avars. That's it for this tour of the West. Next time we head into the capital and out into Anatolia to survey the damage done by the 7th century. But before you go, please check out flitterweb.com. At Flitterweb, you can help spread the word about the websites you love or share cautionary tales about the ones you hate. And when you need to do something new online and you don't know who to trust, you can read reviews and comments from other users and make sure you've found the best site for you. And Flitterweb is being run by a History of Byzantium fan. In fact, the History of Byzantium is listed on Flitterweb and could use some reviews. So go check it out. Flitterweb.com, that's F-L-I-T-T-E-R-W-E-B.
and help spread the word for a fellow history fan. Finally, I just want to say thank you to all of you who've given donations in connection with the Origins of Islam episode. I really appreciate your support, and they do literally change my life and push me towards doing this full-time and getting you your episodes more quickly. Thanks again. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 